If you would turn to your copy of the scriptures to Mark chapter 14 that was read earlier this morning. The account described by Mark this morning goes suddenly into overdrive on this last night of Jesus' life on earth. The speed has gradually picked up, but it is unmatched by the explosiveness we will read of in the next 12 to 15 hours. Here are some highlights of the past week leading up to this tumultuous night. Monday, Jesus enters into Jerusalem in victory. He's riding a donkey colt and immersed in the praise and adoration of thousands. The common people line the streets and they spread out their clothing in the road before Him. They wave palm branches in a display of exultation and praise. And at the end of the day, He makes a brief stop at the temple on the way out of town for a night's stay in nearby Bethany. Tuesday, Jesus returns. And He returns to that temple. After seeing the day before the brazen profiteering of the high priest and his associates, at the crushing expense of the common worshiper, Jesus attacks the bazaar of the high priest and single-handedly he overturns vendor tables and money changer booths and drives out peddlers and all their animals. For at least a few days, the temple has again become a house of prayer rather than a den of thieves. Wednesday, he was back at the temple and this time he is preaching and he is teaching And he's teaching from the Word of God. And he is confronting the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then comes Thursday. Thursday evening, Jesus and his disciples, they observe the annual Passover together. And at that same celebration, you remember Jesus presents the first Lord's Supper. And he announces to his disciples the new covenant of his blood. This joyous occasion ends with Jesus' startling and sobering announcement that one of the twelve, one of the men enjoying the intimate fellowship that night, would soon treacherously betray him to the Jewish authorities. Late Thursday night after Passover, after that somber closing, Jesus took his men, minus Judas, and they walk out of the city gates up to the Garden of Gethsemane, there on the Mount of Olives. And there Jesus immerses Himself in intense prayer and communion with His Father. With great agony, we read, He wrestled and grieved, it says, to the point of death. As He did so, His companion disciples spent the time sleeping. Please, Follow with me in Romans 14, or excuse me, Mark 14, beginning with verse 26. And Brad taught from this last week, and I just want to catch us up with what he taught and what was said there. We'll hear Jesus' prophecy, some of his words, and it'll get us prepared for this morning. Mark 14, 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, 
Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will die with, not deny you. And they all said likewise. Then they came to a place which was called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther, and he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And then he came and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Mark's writing style, as we have discussed, is ideal in capturing the frenzied pace that builds in the next few minutes, minutes in the Garden of Gethsemane. The hurried arrest takes off violently. And then we read in verse 43, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. The execution plan is initiated. There is a setup. There is a definite setup. Isolated in a darkened garden, sleeping disciples nearby amidst the grove of trees, the Son of God has been deep in intense prayer with His Father. He returns to the slumbering watchman when suddenly the scene is shattered by an aggressor mob of Roman soldiers, temple guards, high rank officials, and their servants, clamoring with torches, swords, and clubs. There is no interlude here. Even while the words, See, my betrayer is at hand. As these are coming out of Jesus' mouth, the mob invades the garden. And at the spearhead of the assault is Judas. <clears throat> Each of the gospel accounts here identifies Judas as one of the twelve. Besides validating Jesus' prophecy that one of his own close followers would betray him. This reality drives home the pain of an intimate friend turned traitor. Psalm 41.9, David cried out, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Again in Psalm 55, such heartbreak, he, he writes again, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man, my equal, my companion, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together. 
and walk to the house of God in the throng. You see, in the eyes of the disciples, Judas was a brother at the meal. He was a friend to serve alongside. He was a familiar co-worker. He, Judas, and at least one other disciple had even been sent out as a co-laboring team, missionaries for Jesus. Think of this. They had prophesied in Jesus' name. They had cast out demons in Jesus' name. They had done many wonders, miracles, in the name of Jesus. But in the end, his lawlessness is proven. He went out from them, as John wrote, but he was not really of them. For if he had been of them, he would have remained with them, but he went out in order that it might be shown that he was not of them. But you see, Judas is only a pawn here. The authorities had purchased Judas's services for a measly 30 pieces of silver, the price that you would pay for a slave. And he was merely used by the instigators of this execution plan to find just the right moment for seizing Jesus. It needed to be a secluded location, away from the adoring crowds, and under the dark cover of night. This attacking mob, we read here, included a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, according to John 18. You see, a detachment of Roman soldiers consisted of, it could have been anywhere from 200 to 600 men, a full detachment. And they would have come from the nearby Roman a fortress called the Antonia Fortress. This citadel was attached to the temple grounds and it overlooked the courtyards. There, presiding Roman officials could maintain vigilant control of the Jewish religious center. Use of the Roman soldiers had been obtained by those in charge of this operation of murder and they are listed here as the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. This is important. They were the three main components of the 71-man Jewish Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin. Lane describes these guys this way. Chief priests. It constituted the old ruling class in Jerusalem with Sadducean leanings who still held the balance of power in the Sanhedrin. The scribes. They're primarily lawyers drawn from the middle classes who tend to be Pharisaic in their convictions. And the elders. These represented the most influential lay families in Jerusalem and seemed to have been primarily wealthy landowners. Now ordinarily, you couldn't have left these three parties alone in a room for five minutes and they would have been at each other's throats. But they had found a dark unity and they found it in their hatred for one man, Jesus their opposition was now galvanized against the Son of God. And why did they hate Him so? What right? What reason? What, why did they hate Jesus? Well, first of all, He threatened their lucrative income stream. He left the high priest's bazaar in shambles two days earlier. Secondly, He endangered their stability. Out of fear that Jesus' growing popularity might cause Rome to come in and break up their tightly held control of the people. They had a system, they had a program, and Rome could come in and have demolished that. And they felt like Jesus might be stirring up the crowd. Thirdly, Jesus openly criticized their religious hypocrisy and their abuse of the people. Fourth, he defied their manipulative and endless volumes of the traditions of the elders. Constantly, they were bringing these things up, and Jesus had no regard 
for the tradition of the elders. But I wonder, perhaps as much as anything, and I love this, this is much of us. He trained up a ragtag group of uneducated and untrained men, mostly fishermen, to know God, to speak the gospel, and to perform signs and wonders in His name. Nobodies. You see, none of even the highest of the religious elite had ever known or done anything like this. They hated Him. And the religious leaders needed the Romans. That way they would not be blamed by the citizenry loyal to Jesus for His arrest. The Sanhedrin had diligently worked to find a way to convince the Roman authorities in Jerusalem that Jesus was a threat to their Roman rule. This was key to manipulating the Romans into executing Jesus by means of crucifixion. A practice that was unused and even unthinkable for the Jewish rulers. Now they had secured such support from Rome and they had Jesus at the tip of their grasp. Their plan was rolling out. In Acts, Psalm 2 is quoted. Again, ancient King David prophesied a thousand years before that night. Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. Jesus had seen this coming. Not just for a few days now. And not even since he had first met Judas on that day when he appointed him the unimaginable privilege of a disciple. One of the twelve. Can you imagine Judas having such a privilege given by God? Jesus knew at that moment. Jesus knew the coming of this day as clearly as you and I know the moment that we are now sitting in reality in this room with person by each of us. What we sense is reality. Jesus knew that from the beginning of time. You see, His omnipotence, His omniscience, they know not the bounds of time. He had seen this before the world began and Jesus was fully prepared. Yet, what had He done? He had spent the night agonizing and grieving in intense prayer to face it. See his example. But the disciples, perhaps it could be said this way. The wages of sleep and rest versus the power of concentrated passionate prayer are clearly on display as we see the frightened, frenzied confusion of the disciples and the steady and controlled authority of Jesus Christ. Where are you? As we look at these men, where are you? Are you ready for any moment even close to one such as this? Are you caught up in slumber spiritually? Or are you ready to stand alongside your Savior, having spent regular and intimate time with Him in His Word and prayer? Do you know Him? Is your heart knit with Jesus? I want to push you, and I want you to push me. I think we would all agree that the days ahead are days that will demand spiritual strength and maturity. Nearness and faith in Jesus Christ will be needed like never before in our lifetime. There will be days of trial and distress. But the same day is the day of opportunity 
for meager men and women like you and me. You see, such trials against blatant evil afford the platform upon which we can glorify Christ beyond what you have ever imagined. But are you ready? Are you growing in readiness? Or are you spiritually sleeping as these days come upon us? Hear the prayer of David. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have felt fat, held fast to your path. My feet have not slipped. I have called upon you. For you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my speech. Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior, of those who take refuge at your right hand, from, them, from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me. This prayer is a prayer for us. It may seem extreme, but I don't think it will seem so extreme much longer. Know Christ. Be intimate with Him. Do not neglect Him. And don't let me neglect Him. Let us push each other. In Hebrews it says that we would, one of the translations is spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We want to shine. We want to glorify the Savior of ours. But we cannot do it if we do not know Him. We will be like those disciples asleep while Christ is praying and then what happens? They're sleeping, they're slumbering and suddenly the moment arrives and we will see what happens. Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Identify the target. We have Judas, one of the twelve. Now how is he identified? Look at the verse. What's he called? His, tra- his betrayer, the traitor. One who yields Jesus up or surrenders him to the enemy. It's interesting. In Judas' ancestry, there had been Abraham who believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. But Judas would now exist in infamy forever as the betrayer of God. How would this betrayer play his hand? First of all, a signal was actually necessary in order to identify Jesus, the target. What does this imply? It implies what Isaiah the prophet told us in Isaiah 700 years before the Son of God walked the earth. We read in Isaiah 53, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. In other words, because of Jesus' normal man appearance, and the limited torchlight of the late night, early morning hour, 
The arresting military squad needed help to know which one is Jesus. You see, he had no heavenly glow or halo about him as he walked among the people. He was not four inches taller than all of his disciples, nor was he five times as handsome as they were. He was a plain man, contrary to popular movies and artistic rendering. And Judas's kiss of death would mark Jesus for execution. And secondly, what wicked irony we see here. The common greeting kiss of a dear friend was chosen as a means to ensure the seizure of the targeted Christ for crucifixion. One writer penned, Judas could not have chosen the more despicable way to identify Jesus because he perverted its usual meaning so treacherously and hypocritically. As soon as he had come, Immediately he went up to him, and we see here, as soon as, immediately, and the furious pace of the arrest even begins to increase. You see, so much will happen between this time, late, early in the morning, and by three o'clock the next afternoon, Jesus will be dying on the cross. There will be multiple trials. He will be taken from this place to that place, from one ruler to the next, beaten and spit upon, mocked in between, all in such a short period of time. And, and we see this unfolding at breakneck, breakneck pace. The plan is implemented. And it is implemented in the height of treason. We're going to look at the order of each piece of this depraved fiasco. But it's not absolutely clear. Here are some additional details from each of the Gospels at this moment. Jesus, therefore knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? It is important. It is important to recognize that Jesus is in full control of this moment. He steps forward. He steps forward to initiate the confrontation. There is no step backwards. There is no place looking for a way to run and hide. He steps forward. May that be you brothers and sisters when we come into these moments. That we don't look for an escape. But when that happens we step forward. And we own up to our Savior. Jesus stepped forward. Even though Judas and the mob think this is their moment and their plan. Jesus is the one who begins the questioning. Not the military or religious commanders. Now he does not ask whom are you seeking. Because he lacks knowledge of why they have come. He knows precisely why they are there. But he demands they confess and specify their target. You see, he will only allow himself to be taken. So, who is really in charge of this moment of the arrest? I ask you, who is in charge here? Verse 5 from John. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Isn't it amusing to watch who answers who in this moment of confrontation? And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. This is one of the most amazing moments in the ministry of Christ. Now, when he said to them, I am he, and we're looking at perhaps anywhere from 500, some have estimated as many as even close to 1,000 people that have come to take him. He says, I am he. This is they drew back and fell to the ground. Can you imagine that moment? These aggressors coming in. Jesus steps forward. I am he. And they fall flat backward. Now as many a reader has asked, 
after such a demonstration of Jesus' complete power and control of each of his attackers, why would these foolhardy men continue on with a completely inverted mission? They are answering to Jesus. They are falling back in fearful stupor simply at his word. Is anyone among them thinking, this is only going to get worse? Evidently not. And the arrest proceeds. Then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. And quickly to Matthew 26. And Jesus then turns to Judas and says, Friend, why have you come? Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And Judas said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. You see, the intensified verb form of kiss here tells us that Judas gave a prolonged and emotional kiss in order to ensure the soldiers saw the sign. How sick is that? Effusive in his emotion, kissing this rabbi. And then he cries out with even more drama, with these repeated accolades, Rabbi, Rabbi. And this was adoration. It's like a loyal student saying to his favorite teacher, Master, Master. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. Let that sink in. That is such a simple, short, little word. Then they laid hands on him and took him. Do you realize who they have just taken hands of? The height of arrogance. Peter would describe this height of sinful disdain as he preached in the streets of Jerusalem just a few months later. There he would say, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Who was in charge? The determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands. And that they did. Now, I ask you to think of this. At this precise moment, the entire planet of earth and all its inhabitants received an infinite measure of mercy and that its creator did not instantly annihilate the entire world and all of mankind for this assault. You see, they have taken the Son of God into their hands. This puny mortal soldier man whose breath and beating heart were sustained to life only by the word of the one he is accosting. You see, they've grabbed the one that sustains them. The instant such an arrogant worm touched the flesh of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, God would have been perfectly just in exterminating these self-important fools. But he did not. And he did not, even knowing that this, this is only the beginning of the brutalizing torture that would be heaped upon his son by these men for the next 12 hours. Manhandling the Son of God. What ignorance, what arrogance, what self-righteousness and an offense to the perfect holy God. Directly, the completely unknown jeopardy they were flirting with to their own destruction. Little did they know who they had laid hands upon. 
And Luke says, when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And so suddenly, the plan is confronted. First of all, it's confronted by Peter. Verse 47 says, And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Much has been said about this episode. John's Gospel gives much more detail at this juncture. And let's look at that. John 18, verses 10 and 11 says, Then Simon Peter, so we identify who the one was, having a sword, and it appears that there were two swords at least amongst the disciples, he drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Jesus tells Peter why the sword was foolish and unnecessary in Matthew's gospel. He tells him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. If he were to commit murder at that moment, he would have been justly executed by the soldiers. Or do you think, Jesus goes on to say, that I cannot now pray to my Father, and He will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? A Roman legion consisted of 6,000 men at full strength. Twelve legions would have amounted to 72,000 angels Jesus could have had in a moment. If one angel in the days of King Hezekiah killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night, the potential power of 12 legions of angels is beyond imagination. That was the power at the disposal of Christ as this unfolds. Grasp what's going on here. It is completely in his control. He could do anything. He could call anything. He could change the moment if he had chosen. But he is following down this path. Commentators have seen in this reaction by Peter and the other disciples a fervent willingness to fight for Jesus Christ, but an abject fear of dying with him and for him. You see, the sword came out of Peter's belt quickly, if not very accurately. But the speed of the drawn sword is matched shortly by the speed of Peter's feet and all the apostles running for their lives once they realize Jesus is not going to resist and they may be arrested as well. I quote, Hence, it is again evident that we are much more courageous and ready for fighting than for bearing the cross. And therefore we ought always to deliberate wisely what the Lord commands and what He requires from every one of us. But as they improperly attempt more than the calling of God's commands or permits, their rashness is justly condemned. And therefore let us learn that in order that our obedience may be acceptable to the Lord, we must depend on His will, so that no man shall move a finger except so far as God's command. Another writer said, it is easier to fight for Christ than to die for Him. But Christ's good soldiers overcome, not by taking other people's lives, but by laying down their own. Let me quote that again. It is easier to fight for Christ than to die for Him. But Christ's good soldiers overcome not by taking other people's lives, but by laying down their own. 
And once again, the example of Jesus' disciples that night is put to us, current day disciples. Would you have drawn the sword and been ready to fight? I imagine some of us would have said yes. After all, why not? You have the Messiah. You've seen Him raise people from the dead. You've watched Him heal the sick. You saw Him calm a raging storm at least twice simply by willing it into existence. One word. He's made lame people walk and the blind see. And just a moment earlier, you saw Him simply state, I am, and several hundred hardened Roman soldiers fell backwards to the ground. So how can you lose a fight with a teammate like that behind you? But look, that's the problem. Is he behind you, watching you in action and cheering you on? Or is he in front of you? And are you watching his lead and seeking his will? Peter certainly moved on with what he thought was the best course of action. But he went on his own without the direction of his Lord. And for that he was rebuked. You see, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is still the same Messiah who has raised dead people back to life. He has healed the sick. He has made the lame walk in the blind sea and calmed storms. He's our Jesus. But I urge you to watch Him. Mimic Him. Follow Him. Seek Him. Trust Him. Let Him lead you down these paths. Don't assume. Don't assume what you feel is right or even what is logical or natural or normal is right. It may not be. But what did Jesus do and what did Jesus say? Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Keep your eyes on Christ. Let that drive you. Let that lead you. Let that tell you what to do. And now Christ confronts. Jesus answered in verse 48. Have you, come out against, out, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take, take me, to arrest me? One says to capture me. You see, a robber, by definition, was armed and dangerous. One who would resist arrest and take others down with him. Jesus had taught and lived just the opposite. Were a Roman military cohort and armed temple guards necessary? Or was it a show? Was it a show to ensure that, that Jesus' loyal followers, the citizenry, would not rise up against them at this moment? But I want to ask you this. Was it even a show to give the public the false impression that their Jesus was a force to be feared and that the Roman and temple leaders were only trying to protect the citizenry from evil power? It's for your own good, people. We want you to be safe. Does that not ring contemporaneously with some of the deceptions we see? Verse 49. I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. See, nothing about Jesus warranted this over-the-top arrest. He was easy to find. 
Where was he? He was in the most public place in all of Jerusalem, in the temple. He was there every day consistently. And he was doing the same things. He was teaching about God. There was nothing clandestine about Jesus. And then Jesus just flat out declares the reason why they have treated him so. It's in Luke chapter 22, 53. He says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And yet he goes on to say, there is still a supreme purpose that rules even their dark, evil plan. He says, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. So they had their plan. They had their hour of darkness. And it was proceeding in much how they had hoped. But it was also proceeding about through a much grander, greater plan. And that was of the sovereign God. Isaiah the prophet, he declared this sovereign God saying, Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. That is our God. Isaiah 48.3 I declared the former things long ago and they went forth from my mouth and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted and they came to pass. This is our God. And then in the final two verses, three verses, we see the plan's impact. From fight to flight. Then they all forsook him and fled. Remember, there's been an intimate dinner of close friends just a hours ago. The boasting of unity and courage and faithfulness to each other. The celebration of the Passover, God's deliverance from their ancient foes. Jesus has even promised a future kingdom with them. And one writer said, Hence we may again infer how much more ready they were to fight rashly than to follow their master. Another wrote, The betrayal of Judas is thus multiplied by the wholesale failure of the disciples. They all abandon Jesus and flee. Like a beautiful crystal vase hurled onto a granite tombstone, everything shatters before the disciples' very eyes. Their confident hearts grow suddenly cold and full of fear. Now it is Jesus alone. Not one friend courageous enough to stand with him to the end. Fear has captured his men. And they have fled for their lives. As we saw last week, Zechariah 13, 7 is fulfilled. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, Christ, and the sheep will be scattered. The disciples. Verse 51 says, Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young man laid hold of him. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. And one might ask, who is that? I have no idea. The scriptures don't give us that name. There's a lot of inferences about who it might have been. But I think we ought to be very cautious when the scriptures don't give a name that we don't run and give a name real quickly either. Detail is provided. Some interesting detail, but, but no real specificity. Some have ventured that this is John Mark, the author of this gospel. 
He's perhaps speaking about his own cowardly self at the time Jesus was arrested. But that requires a lot of speculation. And I think we would have known that had it been important. No name is given. No role or position is shared about this person. We know this. He is a young man. He is not one of the disciples. He is mentioned in the Gospel of Mark only. He has apparently come in haste, in a hurry. He's possibly rich because linen garments or sheets were a sign of wealth. And we see that he gets close enough to the arrest that an attempt is made by the mob to seize him. But he escapes. And he loses the linen and ends up a naked or partially clothed deserter like all the others. What do we understand from this? It's hard to know, but I think what we can say is those near to Jesus, those disciples, and those watching from a distance, there was no difference. Everyone left Jesus, fearing for their lives. Finish with this quote. On that historic night, against the backdrop of mayhem and darkness, the undaunted majesty and triumphant tranquility of Christ shone as brightly as ever. We see the failures of the disciples. We see the the gross failure of Judas. But who's with him now? No one. And we can identify with that. How many times have we failed to, to recognize our Savior publicly? To speak of him? To be moved to do, do so? And we walk away, and, and I've done this many times, thinking, I should have done that. And then we live on. We do not want to be counted among those. We want to be counted among those who stand for Christ and look at every opportunity to exalt our Savior. Some application would be, do not sleep spiritually as the days of trial fast approach. Do not sleep spiritually. Know Christ intimately. Pray and seek His Word diligently. Spend much time with Him. And I know that it's, it's hard to carve that out. If you have a handful of children, young, that need diapers, and some need to know calculus, and how do you do all that? Or you're running a business, or the demands upon you are to meet deadlines. So I, I can't tell you how you can do this, but I can tell you you must do it. Or when that day comes, when you have the opportunity to step up to the platform and die for Jesus, you will run like those disciples did. So figure it out. You figure it out. But know Him and spend time with Him. And seek Him. He will give you that if you will ask Him and seek Him to draw yourself to Him. Most of our failures don't come because we're trying so hard and we can't get it in. It's most of it comes because it's not a priority. We don't see the, the, the very essence of life in knowing God. But we must. And that's one of the blessings of the approaching times of difficulty. If nothing else will shake us up, maybe that will. We want to be able to stand when the soldiers come, when the temple guard comes, when the authorities come when the non-believers hate what we're doing. We want to stand in grace in the authority of Christ.
Secondly, seek the will of God above your natural response or even spiritual inclination. Man, that is a tough one for me. Sometimes I want to act first and then pray later. Act first and then read later. That's the bad way to do it. You saw what happened to Peter. He says, put it away. Don't get in the way of what's going on here. Peter is, is going to clearly deny him soon three times. But he has denied him several times already of who he is and what he's done and sleeping on the job and these things. But yet God will use Peter and we'll see that. And that's exciting to remember. But seek God. Ultimately be ready to die for his name more than fight for survival. And lastly, I say trust in the sovereignty of Jesus Christ and follow him. And this is something I'd like to ask you to do in, the, in your own homes, either as a family or as an individual. Read this story over again and read it again and read it again. And as you do, jot down how you see Jesus in control. Note, it is expressed over and over again. But look at that and marvel at him. I put as a title something that may seem unrelated, but let me pull that up so I don't miss it. Christ undaunted at the mouth of the furnace. And I'd like for you to turn, if you would, with me to Daniel chapter 3. well-known account of three young men who had been violently taken by force out of their country, uh, essentially kidnapped, captured uh, as slaves of war and brought to Babylon, never to see their families again, but men who were faithful to God. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're going to answer the king. Let me back up to 13. They've been demanded to worship this idol and to pay homage to this. And, and they have not done so and their enemies use this as a trap. And Nebuchadnezzar has heard about this now. And verse 13 says, Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the God, gold image which I have set up. Now if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Then who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, look at the cool here, the trust. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. 
These men didn't come by that answer, by sleeping in or late to the morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, we are every one of us to a man, to a woman. We are all weak and frail. And we desperately need you. And it appears that you are placing us in opportunities even now regularly to bring glory to your name. Father, please equip my brothers and sisters and myself with your spirit, with the knowledge of you, with faith, so that we can stand beside our Savior when these moments come, that our lives will either be lived or sacrificed to the praise and glory of our King. For you are worthy for eternity. And you have granted us the privilege to spend it with you. In your name we pray. Amen.